Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. journey through our worship series, um, tracing discipleship and what does it mean to become more than what we are, to become a better disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, I've been utilizing some of the vocabulary out of this book that I used to study with in my undergraduate religious studies by Leonard Swindler and Paul Moses, The Study of Religion in an Age of Global Dialogue. And in it, they look for a way to define and articulate for us religion. And they do this by creating a composition of four C's, creed, code, cult, and community. And the past two weeks, we've covered creed and code. And today, we will cover cults, which can sound very intimidating. And so here is how they define cult. Cult means all the ritual activities that relate the follower to one aspect or another of the transcendent, in our case, our God either directly or indirectly. Prayer is an example of the former, and certain formal behaviors towards representative of the transcendent, such as clergy, is an example of the latter. Now, in our story today, we heard some of the first clergy. Aaron is the first high priest, and Moses is acting in kind of a clergy pastoral role as he is shepherding God's people, hopefully toward the promised land up until today. And so as we look at that and look at what cult means, what we find is that the authors of the book were actually using the Latin word cultus. That word is a system or variety of religious worship. It's the things that we do that give our faith form. It's how our spirituality is enlivened through actions and devotion. And so that's really what they were meaning about cult, not the more pejorative word that is a system of religious veneration and devotion directed towards a particular figure or object. Oftentimes throughout religious history, a dominant religion has looked at new up and coming religions and made them inconsequential by labeling them as cults. Now, sometimes you hear people use the word cult as if they're talking about a group of followers who don't think critically about the things that they are told or about their charismatic leader. I'm sure you can think of some people who do that. Hence, we have the saying in Christianity, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Because we do have people who every now and then use their gifts and their charisma in order to manipulate people. But if you look at it from a scholastic perspective, Following a charismatic leader would perfectly describe the early Christians. They were following Jesus. And that is exactly how the Jewish leadership, the religious leaders at the time, looked at Jesus and his disciples. They were a new cult. And so they tried to destroy them. So when we talk about cults for the rest of this message, we're not going to be talking about the pejorative label, but instead cultus, how it is that we express ourselves religiously. And you'll notice in our story today that after the people complained to him and Aaron, Moses and Aaron immediately went to the tent of meeting. That is the tabernacle. Went to the place where they gather before God, and there they posed their question. 
How do we fix this? How do we make this better? And so in their devotion, they received the answer. You will gather the people together. You will take your staff with which you have performed miracles and you will take that staff as a sign of your authority and you will go to the rock and you will use your words, as I told the children, to call forth water from the rock. But it's really hard when you have a giant stick in your hand to resist showing your anger and hitting the rock, not once, but twice. But as I told the children at children's time, because God is such a good God, God still sent the water from the rock. When a person messes up, God doesn't continue to let God's people thirst. And so God provides, but then God says, we need to have a conversation about what you just did. You didn't rely on me to give your words the power. You lashed out in anger and you struck that rock and you have betrayed your position. And so it becomes very important when we start looking at where we get our strength and how we get our guidance. And our cultists, our religious activities, are one of the central ways that we do that. In our Book of Discipline in United Methodism, it is both our history book, it is our polity book, how we organize ourselves, it is also our book of doctrine and theology. And in there, we talks about the ordinances of God. These are activities and the things that we can do ritualistically that are a means of grace for us. In doing them, we experience God's grace. And what are they? The public worship of God. Congratulations, you already have one. Today, you are in the public worship of God. And so you are already experiencing that part of the means of grace, but also you are fulfilling one of the ordinances, one of the things that God commands of us. Number two is the ministry of the word read or preached congratulations now you have two because the ministry of the word or as some may refer to it the sermon is an opportunity to take god's text god's holy scripture and to bring it in the united methodist understanding to bring it into the current context of the congregation so when we do this it's quite possible that the sermon will change. For instance, if you come to the nine o'clock, you will often realize that my sermons are not exactly the same, that they, they transition, or sometimes I use different illustrations, or sometimes I can kind of go off in an entirely different direction because this sermon is for you. It's not for the nine o'clock congregation. They already got a sermon. And so our sermons are supposed to, in the United Methodist understanding, the Wesleyan way, to be very specific for you today. If I were to take this text and come back to you next week, my sermon should not be the same because things have changed from today. And so they are very intentional and specific, and that's why we rely so heavily on the Holy Spirit to guide and guard us and help us to be very much present and addressing your current context. So the ministry of the word, read, read or preached, and yes, you can read sermons. You can't read mine. I don't write them down, but you can read John Wesley's sermons. I would encourage you to get a rather large pot of coffee. They are dense, slightly intense, but they are worth reading. And as uh, Methodist clergy, we read a lot of John Wesley's words. Um, and so it is important to see what it was that he was saying at the very beginning of the holiness movement that became Methodism. And his wisdom still rings true today. So you can read the ministry of the word. The third one is Holy Communion. 
Now this is a sacrament in Methodism. It's one of the ways where we can have a outward invisible sign, a tangible sign of God's inward grace. And so Holy Communion is an excellent way to live out our faith and yet experience God's grace simultaneously. We don't say baptism in the same way because as Wesleyans have said for many, many years, including John and Charles, baptism is neither sufficient nor necessary for salvation. It is a wonderful experience. It is a high and holy sacrament. But we also believe that there's only one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And so a lot of us experienced that before we had the wherewithal to experience it. But the one thing that we can do repeatedly, as often as we like, is take Holy Communion. And in Methodism, you have that opportunity. It's not you only get it once a week. It's not that you can only have it once a month, as even in this congregation, our habit is to have communion on the first Sunday of each month. But you can have it over and over again. There are a number of us in this church that will have it at the 9 o'clock contemporary worship and then have it again at the 11 o'clock traditional worship. And that's wonderful. You cannot consume too much of God's grace in our understanding. And so Holy Communion becomes a place where we get to repeatedly be invited, be hosted, and receive God's grace, a tangible taste of God's grace that becomes part of who we are. Our body metabolizes it. It becomes part of how we think and feel and act as we are being sanctified, perfected in God's love inside out. And that's a wonderful gift that we have been given in that sacrament. Communal and private prayer. Now, the chancel choir just gave you a beautiful insight that nothing is impossible when we pray. Absolutely nothing. Unfortunately, there are some times in our lives where our prayers kind of become like a wish list. Like, God, it would be really nice if I won the lottery. Or, God, it would be really nice if you just made this person disappear from my life. And that is not the point of prayer. It is also not an opportunity to gossip. Right? Sometimes you're doing the phone tree. Remember the old days where we used to phone tree the prayer request? And all of a sudden it become a little less about lifting up prayer and a little bit more about getting the info. That was not the purpose of prayer either. But instead, prayer is communication with God. It is communication directly up with God, especially privately. But even private prayer should be connecting us to other people as we pray for people, the people that we know and love, the people that we don't love as much as we should, that we are asking God to be the conduit for us, that we might be connected in a powerful way to other people, that we might love them more as Christ loves them, that we might be better in how we act toward other people, more open to receiving other people being kind toward us. And so personal prayer and then corporate prayer, corporate prayer is always an interesting thing. Now, when I was in seminary, a third of the population were from Korea. And in Korea, they have this incredible mode of prayer. They will get together at the very early hour of 5 a.m. to pray. And in some of the churches in Korea, there are hundreds of people at 5 a.m. And then they do this thing that was very alien to me in my Caucasian church upbringing. They all talk out loud at once. And the first time, you know, you, the Korean caucus hosts chapel at seminary, you know, you all sit down and, you know, get your hands in your head, you bow your head. And then all of a sudden, and I'm like, somebody's talking, what is going on? 
and you get very overwhelmed, and about 15 minutes into the prayer, you start to realize that this isn't going anywhere, and you better figure out how to be comfortable. Now, in my Caucasian background, usually one of two things happened when it got quiet for prayer time. You tolerate a certain amount of quiet, and then you start to hear the, um, the need to clear your throat, you know, to sniffle, to drop hymnals. Why do we always drop hymnals in the middle of prayer? I don't understand that. Like, boom, big one. I think sometimes it's a sign, a sign that we're uncomfortable with the silence. But we are invited in corporate prayer to be mindful of the others who are with us, to be mindful that just as we are here, so are they. And they have come to worship God as we have come to worship God. And the presence and the binding that is happening as we become the body of Christ. In not just our presence, but in our prayers. And so that becomes an opportunity for us as disciples to recognize that we are not solitary islands. We are a federation. We are a body. We are a family of faith. And it helps to cement us together that as we pray, there are invisible threads that the Holy Spirit is weaving and tightening and binding us together even greater than we were before. So that by the time we say amen, we are not the same. That the Holy Spirit that some of us received at our baptism And the Holy Spirit that chooses to wash over us and indwell in us, that that same Holy Spirit is linking us to one another in the midst of our devotion. It's an incredible realization. We're not just listening to someone speak. We're not just passively sitting here. Their words become our words and their sentiments become ours. And we start to feel the connection pulling us tighter even as it's lifting us up toward God. And so prayer is vital, communal and private. Our prayer life is our religious life. And and then we have searching the scriptures, which most people will go, that's Bible study. Yes, it is Bible study. Searching the scriptures. Now, I'm clergy, and so I search the scriptures a lot. It's part of the job, but it also helps you do the job. So I understand searching the scriptures by yourself. But I can tell you, I can testify before God and all of you right now that no matter how many times I have read a passage, and I've read some of them a lot, that when I gather together with other people and we search these scriptures together, that time and time again I am amazed by the things that strike me, that occur to me, the epiphanies that I have that I have never had before. I have read some of these texts probably a hundred, at least a hundred times, a hundred times. And then all of a sudden, today, of all days, with these people, something hit me that I would never have seen before. And that's the power of searching the scriptures together in community, is that all of us are bringing our experiences, our questions, our ponderings, our lessons, the things that we have experienced as Christians, but also the things that we have experienced in the course of our life to bear as we read this text together. And that is what is so powerful about searching the scriptures. And you can tell when people don't search the scriptures. You can tell when people don't read their Bible. Now, I'm not saying that you need to be able to memorize your Bible and cite it chapter and verse, but you should have some familiarity with the Bible. It is a gift from God. 
There are so many religions across the world that do not have 66 books of love letters to God's people. And we have that. And we live in a time in Christian history where you can get it in your own language. You can get it in any kind of binding you want. You want big binding, you can have it. You want little, you want digital. You can have the scriptures. They are yours. And we need to search them because we need to know what it is that God has told us and what it is that God is telling us now. We need to read the Bible. In fact, this past week at chapel, I gathered the kids in and I had a big old donkey standing here, a fake donkey. There are trustees in the room. A fake donkey. And as it was here and I had the children gathered up here, I said, I'm going to tell you a story today from the Bible. And they were like, okay. And I said, I'm going to tell you a story, and this story is about a talking donkey. Did you know there's a talking donkey in the Bible? That's because you read your Bible. You know that. There's a talking donkey in there. In fact, it's in the book of Numbers. And as I'm telling the story about the donkey, I said there was this donkey, and he was the donkey that was owned by a prophet. And this prophet decided that he was going to take money to curse God's people. And God wasn't really happy with that, so God sent an angel. But the prophet, who should have been able to see, couldn't. And there was an angel standing in the middle of the road to stop him. And the donkey saw the angel, and the donkey's like, I am not going that way. And the donkey walked off. And the prophet, who couldn't see the angel, hit the donkey. At this point, the preschoolers become very upset. Why would you hit the donkey? because they know that we don't hit each other. And so then the donkey tries again. Now the angel has gone a little further down the road and the road is narrowed by two walls on either side. And the donkey is trying to avoid the angel and scrapes the prophet's foot up against the wall. And the prophet gets angry and so he hits the donkey again. Now the kids are beside themselves. If they had had the terminology, they would have cried animal abuse. And then we get to the third time. Now the angel is farther down and the angel has its sword and the angel is like, there is no going around me this time. And the donkey is like, I give up. And the donkey literally lays down under the prophet. I just, not moving. I'm not going anywhere. And as the prophet gets ready to hit the donkey a third time, God in the angel opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey speaks to the prophet and says, why would you hit me? I have served you faithfully. Why would you beat me? There's an angel right here. And then the prophet looks and sees the angel and is like, oh, yes, my bad. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically the gist of the story. And the kids were like, what happened next? And I said, the donkey was better than the man because the donkey carried the man on the rest of his journey and then carried him all the way back home. But most of us, if that had happened, we would have been like, you know what? Walk your bottom to the king. And I won't see you when you get back. I'm packing up my hay bale and I'm out. But the donkey did the right thing, the kind thing. And God gave that animal voice. And there were a lot of people, and because the adults were sitting here, right? I got preschool adults there and like, is talking donkey in the Bible? Yes, there is. There's all kinds of wonderful things in the Bible. If you're a young man and you're looking for an excuse not to get your hair cut, you can cite Samson. 
My hair is my glory, and if you cut it, I will have no power. There's all kinds of wonderful things you can cite in the Bible. And the more you know your Bible, the snarkier you can get with it. I've told you before that anytime anybody gets too feisty with me about, like, women shouldn't be preaching, I read that in the Bible. And I was like, yes, but Genesis 21, 12, the Lord said to Abraham, whatever Sarah tells you to do, do as she says. Know your Bible. Know your Bible. It's an important thing. It empowers you. It really gives you hope sometimes that a story about donkeys talking can actually give us hope that we might find a better way. And so searching the scriptures is vital. And the last one, the last ordinance that's listed in the book of discipline is fasting or abstinence. Usually people are ready to move on by the time we get to this. I understand, those are not comfortable topics. And right now we're kind of in a health craze where people are using um, intermittent fasting as a diet and that's not the kind of fasting we're talking about. We're talking about denying yourself something that your body wants or craves so that you can focus on your mind and your spirit and your union with God. And that's not a permanent thing, but it does change how you think about yourself and how you think about God, and it actually changes the way in which you are in the world. I haven't been completely silent about the fact that it has been my personal practice for over 10 years that after I eat dinner on Saturday night, I will not break my fast until after worship is finished. And so plenty of times I go up to 18 hours without eating, depending on when I ate dinner and when I get done with church. And anybody who does public speaking will tell you that is absolutely what you should not do. You don't get up in the morning to do really important public speaking and have a low blood sugar. You don't get up in the morning when you're getting ready to do really important speaking and not have energy because you haven't eaten. But I've read my Bible and my strength comes from the Lord. And if I can do anything, it is for the glory of God. It is not because I had a really balanced breakfast. And so it matters. It matters. But I'll tell you, the more that you do these cultists, these religious activities, the more that you do them, even when you don't want to do them, the more that you do them, even when you start to think, you know what, maybe this isn't even as effective as it once was, the more that you do them, the more that God will engage with you through them. This past week, I was praying because one of the things that my family does for Thanksgiving, uh, every other year I don't have my son, and so the year that I don't have my son, which will be this year, I'll have him for Christmas instead, is that my best friend drives up from Virginia Beach, and my parents, and he and I, and my sister and her husband, if we can wrangle them together, we will all go to Maggiano's in Richmond and eat Thanksgiving there. Because the last thing Pastor Sarah wants to do on Thanksgiving is cook and clean. So we manja, and then we get to come home. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. I made really early my reservation for six because, you know, you want, to, you want a, a little type A. Little type A. So I wanted to get my reservations in quick. And I have it on my calendar in a big orange block, Thanksgiving at Maggiano's, seating for six. Well, then my sister the other week texted me and says, we're not going to be able to make it. And she lives up in the wilderness of Northern Virginia, which is referred to as the Plains. That's where my sister lives. And so she's like, we're just not going to be able to make it down this year. We're, we're going to be here. And so I went, okay, all right. And of course, the type A in me immediately wanted to go, you need to call Maggiano's and amend your reservation right now. 
like yesterday, you needed to have done that. And every time I open up my calendar multiple times a day, that block of orange yells at me that I am not being a good person, that I don't want to show up at Thanksgiving and only have four people at a table for six. But one day while I was praying, after my sister told me this, God said, let it ride. Now, I don't gamble. I'm a Methodist. So I was like, what does that mean? And God was like, just don't do anything. That's a new experience for me. Usually God's telling me a million things to do, but okay, you don't want me to do anything. And then that inner dissonance rises up in you, and you're like, but I only have four people. And God's like, just calm down. Just wait. But then this past week, my mother texted me, and she said, our neighbor, my neighbor that I had from the time I was six until the time that I permanently moved out of my house in the 20s, that neighbor across the street whose husband I just buried in August, that neighbor has nowhere to go for Thanksgiving. And even though she has no children of her own and there's like his extended family, she just didn't feel quite right about it. When my mom was talking to her, she said, what are your plans for Thanksgiving? And this beloved woman in our family life said, I'm going to stay home. And my mother said, no, you're not. And so she texted me and she said, can we get her on our reservation? And I went, yes, because I have two open seats. Absolutely, she can come. And then part of me was like, okay, I filled one of them, but I need to call them and tell them I only have five instead of six. And God didn't have to tell me this time, let it ride. Because we may get all the way up to the morning of Thanksgiving, and I may say to somebody, what are your plans for Thanksgiving? And they might say, I have none. And I, because I have read my Bible and searched my scriptures, and I have prayed, I know that the scriptures tell us that we are called to be a people who welcome the stranger. I know that we are called to be a people who show hospitality for we were once strangers in a strange land and we received none. I know that our Bible tells us that there is a table in the kingdom to come that Christ has prepared where Christ serves us and every single human being has a reserved seat at that table. And we get the opportunity in something as ordinary as Thanksgiving reservations to reinforce that holy truth. And so I might have six at my table when the Lord reveals to me who my sixth will be. But that's about me getting over my own self. Because every time I open my calendar, which is multiple times a day, I still see the reservation for six. And God is like, I need you to trust me, but I want to hit the call button twice on my phone and call Magianos. And you know what? It's not going to be an easy thing on Thanksgiving because I dress up weirdly. And she's going to come and she's probably going to be like, hi, Sarah par for the course, but we're going to be in public, and that's a whole other thing. If you want to see Maggiano Short Pump 1215 Thanksgiving, come on up. But it's, it's an opportunity, right? It's something that happened because in the midst of us doing our devotion to God and attending to our spiritual rituals, God said to us, let it ride. And probably nudged my mother and said, ask her. Ask her. 
and somebody else will get asked, and somebody else will come. I will just find somebody. I don't know if you know this. I'll talk to anybody. I'll just find somebody. And that is what it is to live out your faith through your cultists, through your religious practice. It becomes so crucial. It helps us to be better than we were before. And so we need to do those things. All of the ordinances, the public worship of God, the ministry of the word, holy communion, communal and private prayers, searching the scriptures, fasting or abstinence, all of those things are opportunities for us to do something and in the middle of doing something, what we usually find is that we have actually created a conduit, a connection with God, and God can speak to us in a way that God can't get through to us any other time or way. And that is why we have them. Now Moses went to God to solve a problem, went to devotion at the house of God. At this point, it was the tent of meeting the tabernacle and said, I have a problem. We still do that today. I have a problem. People are driving me crazy. That still sometimes happens today. And God said, here's how you're going to fix it. This is what I am going to do. Here is how you will participate. And Moses heard God, heard him say, get the staff, heard him say, get Aaron, heard him say, get the congregation, go to the rock, heard all those things. But somehow Moses glossed over the use your words. Use your words. And in anger, probably because he was hurt, he smacked that rock not once but twice. Just like there was a prophet who was riding a donkey one day and smacked that donkey not once but twice. There's a theme here. We lash out when we should be using our words. We act out of anger when we need to take a moment and let it ride. But if we don't attend to our ordinances, if we don't keep connected with our rituals and our practices, then we become ungrounded grains of sand blowing in the wind. And we are meant to be seated on the rock that is Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that when Christ knew that he was going to heaven, he left a new rock. He left a person just like you and me, a person who was flawed and who had failed and who had made mistakes, but sometimes got it right. And he left that person, he changed his name to the rock, and he said, on you I will build my church. I read that in the Bible. But God is saying to each and every one of us, on you I will build but we don't know the instructions if we don't search the scriptures. We don't know the amendments and the things that have been tweaked in the middle of the, of the process if we don't use our prayer. We won't know what it is that God is asking of us if we don't go to public worship. We won't know to whom God is sending us if we don't come together. And so these things become vital. And in a world where I hear time and time again, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, my heart breaks. Because when my spirituality has been its worst and its most fragile, it is my religiosity that has grounded me and brought me closer to God so that God could give me back my spirituality. If you withdraw from these things, you will find yourself untethered. 
You will find yourself drifting apart from the community. You will find yourself feeling further and further away from God. And God did not create you to be a lost sheep. By far, the favorite story of the children in the preschool is the parable of the lost sheep. And in this sacred room, I hide a sheep, and they go and they look for the sheep. And they ask me all the time, when are we going to play the lost sheep game again? When are we going to play the game where we go and find the sheep and bring it back and scream hallelujah and have a little party? That is straight out of the Bible, my siblings in faith. And they are an anxious people, a people who are eager to find the lost. They want us to show them what lost people look like now. They know a lost sheep. Now they need to know the lost people because they already know how to gently carry them back. They already know how to celebrate together in the presence of the Lord. They already are equipped for that. Now our turn to show the youngest generation how to go find God's lost people. May you find strength and courage and love in these gifts that God has given to us. And when you are feeling that moment where you think to yourself, you know what, it's really early, I'm really tired, I'm, I'm, you know, there are a million things I could be doing, I could stay home in my pajamas. When you find that moment and you think to yourself, you know what, I'm just not gonna go to the public worship of God today, may you remember that it is in worship that God connects with us again in a myriad of ways, in prayer, in searching the scriptures, in the ministry of the word, in coming together and forming the body of Christ, in holy communion, when we have that in, in worship, all of those things are given to you in one fell swoop because our God is a gracious God. Yes. And may you find within you maybe the vestiges of the Holy Spirit saying, go anyway. For you never know who will be here that day for you. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.